as a church, we've been reading through the scriptures, and we finished the book of Luke this last week, and so I thought it'd be appropriate to continue that thought. Let's look at the account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ from the book of Luke. The disciples faced a roller coaster of emotions the week before the cross, and if you understand the story, you know exactly what we're talking about. Um, You know it began with what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And for the disciples, this was a jubilant procession. Um, You can picture it, Jesus entering Jerusalem uh, to the shouts of hallelujah and blessed be the king. Palm branches were waving and there was a huge uh, feeling of excitement in the air. They very much believed that this was Jesus' coronation procession, that he was going to be crowned king. In, In their minds, the time had finally come when Jesus would take his rightful place on the throne of David and be crowned the rightful king of Israel. But the week took some unexpected turns, didn't it? It didn't go the way they expected it to go. And it finally ended with their beloved rabbi and friends snatched from the garden, falsely accused, wrongfully charged, and brutally beaten, and then cruelly hung on an old rugged cross. It left them confused and bewildered. It left them hurting and fearful. I think we too will run the gamut of emotions today as we step into the steps of our Lord. I know I did in preparation. My mind went a lot of different places. We'll feel sorrow for what Jesus endured. We'll probably feel some anger over the injustice. We'll feel some shame that it was my sin that placed him there. And then we'll feel amazement that he would love us that much. But the story continues, and that sorrow has turned to joy. Anger gives way to gratitude, and shame is replaced by the wonder of forgiveness. Sadness turns to glorious celebration as we see the empty tomb, and we add our voices to the chorus of witnesses that say, He is not here. He is risen, as he said. So last week, we left Jesus and the disciples at the Passover table. That's where we'll begin our meditation today. Picture them. They're in the upper room. Uh, They've completed the meal. Jesus has instituted the Lord's table. Uh, We call this communion. And now the party of 12 is leaving the upper room, and they're making their way out across the Kidron Valley, and they're going to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know the story well. It's a place they were familiar with. Jesus went there often to pray. And while Luke's account omits some of the details of the other Gospels, he clearly captures the battle that raged within the heart of our Lord, Let's listen as we read this passage. Starting in verse 39. And he came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said to them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, And was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Thank you, John. We'll never understand exactly what our Lord was feeling at that time. 
the emotions that he was feeling, the weight that he was carrying. Uh, we know he prayed three separate times, um, likely for two to three hours. When was the last time your soul was so burdened that you prayed for two to three hours? I've not prayed that long in one specific sitting, setting, but Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 5 or 7 speaks of this event, and he says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and with tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and he was heard. How long did Jesus pray? He prayed until he was certain that he'd been heard. And that's an amazing thought. When he rose up from his knees that final time, there was a peace and a settledness in his heart that could only come from the Father. And we know that because you look at the rest of the story and you don't see panic. You don't see fear. You see a calmness and a settledness that could only come from, Jesus, from the Lord. Um, there was a strength there that was supernatural in nature. You know, when I was younger, I often pictured the battle taking place around the cross. The forces of evil gathered in mass against Jesus in this cosmic battle playing out right there around the cross. But the older I get and the more I read this story and I think the more I understand this story, I think the true battle took place in the garden. Yes, it was a battle on the cross, but it was won on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. When he, when he yielded that right, he said, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he humbled himself. That's where the battle was won. The real battle took place in Gethsemane. Take your hymn books as we reflect on this and turn to 235. 235. The chorus of this song starts out, Lest I forget Gethsemane. Let's think about Jesus' agony in the garden as we sing these four verses. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Jesus finishes praying that third time and he wakes his disciples from sleep for the third time. And at that moment, Judas arrives with a multitude of soldiers and religious leaders and he betrays his friend with a kiss. There's irony. Peter, I think still groggy from slumber, mounts a feeble defense, takes his sword and tries to protect his Lord and Savior and that doesn't turn out well. And then the disciples forsake him and they flee. And he's there alone with his soldiers, and he's now brought to the house of the high priest. It's the middle of the night, probably the wee hours of the morning, I guess two, maybe three o'clock in the morning. He's brought to the house of the high priest, and he's beaten, and he's mocked through the night, becoming a little more than a source of amusement to help the soldiers pass the long hours of the evening. The Sanhedrin then meets first thing in the morning. Peter summons his courage and arrives sometime later, and there in the courtyard by the fire, denial takes place. The rooster crows, and he looks into the eyes of Jesus, and he runs out weeping bitterly. Remember the story. The Sanhedrin waits till daybreak so everything would be legal. They assemble together, and they quickly arrive at the verdict. They'd already made up their mind, hadn't they? They knew exactly what they were going to do. But they didn't have the authority to carry out the sentence. So Jesus next was brought to Pilate's hall. He was the governor. And after that, he went on to Herod, who was the acting king at that time. And then finally, Jesus came back to Pilate. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 13 of chapter 23. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, 
And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all, the mo- all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them, but they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed, and Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Take your hymn books and turn to 237. 237, it's the second verse that captures the words that we just read. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but those probably wouldn't have been my first thoughts after what Jesus endured there on the cross. But that was his first thought, forgive them. We'll talk more about that later. But let's sing this song together, 237. Our Lord was on the cross for several hours, and during the first three hours, the crowd continued to mock him and to jeer. Even the two thieves, one on each side, got into the act. But as time went on, the one thief had a change of heart. As he watched Jesus, he realized that this was no ordinary man. He wasn't crying out in anger. He wasn't protesting his sentence or declaring his innocence. He wasn't hurling insults back at the crowd. This man was different. And that made an impact on this thief. And so he rebukes his companions. He proclaims Christ's innocence while at the same time admitting his guilt. He declares that Jesus Christ is Lord and he, remembers, he asks him to remember him as he goes into his kingdom. It's profound. This thief who was moments from death is going to spend eternity in heaven because of his recognition of who Jesus was and his recognition of his own sin. Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. So three hours have passed, but there are yet three brutal hours to go. And we're going to read another section here in just a moment that's going to start by saying there was darkness over the face of the earth for a span of three hours. The sun was darkened. 
And it's just a little phrase that we read, and I don't have time to get into this too much, but as I was reading this week, this is a fact that's historically documented. Um, there's many historians from that day that talk about darkness for three hours at, at this time. In fact, there's a philosopher by the name of Diogenes who was in Egypt at the time, and he saw this, and his comments at the, at the end of this were something to this effect, either the deity is suffering greatly right now, or he sympathizes with one who does. That's pretty astute. Um, and so this was a darkness. I believe it was a worldwide darkness. I believe God was pulling the curtain, so to speak, over what was happening on the cross with his son. It wasn't up for public display. Yes, it was a spectacle there, but I think there's a point where that darkness was trying to hide them from public view. And so we read next about the death and the burial of our Lord. Luke 23, 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I command of my spirit. And having thus said, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, beholding the things which were done, smote their breast and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after, and beheld the sepulcher, and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. I don't think we can imagine what the disciples were feeling as they made their way back to their homes that evening. I'm sure they were numb. I'm sure it was probably the longest, most somber Sabbath that they had ever experienced. For us, we're seeing it in just moments here as we're reading through the scriptures, but for them, it was a long period of time. I think that they were struggling with some of these things, the sadness of what they were feeling. But there's joy just around the corner. There's a song that we're going to sing next that I think uh, brings that out very clearly. And uh, let's go ahead and sing 256. It captures the sorrow of the tomb, but the joy of the resurrection. And if you join me in standing, we've been seated for a while. Let's stand together as we sing 256. I'm adjusting. I woke up early this morning, and I was laying there in the darkness, thinking about what it must have been like for those women 
who'd gather their spices and they were making their way uh, to the tomb. Still sad, still sorrowful, still numb. They don't know the end of the story like we do, but they're about to encounter Jesus Christ, aren't they? I'd like to ask the person to come next. Luke 24, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. Come on ahead, Amy. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher and found the spices, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed them on their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulchre, and told all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter, and ran into the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering himself at that which was to come to pass. It seemed to them as idle tales. <laughs> I could probably make some comments on that, but I'd probably get in trouble. Men, sometimes we don't believe our wives like we should, do we? <laughs> it seemed as idle tales, but what did Peter do? Peter, the one who wanted to believe in the resurrection probably the most, he went and looked for himself. Uh, what a wonderful passage that is. The sorrow of the cross turning into the joy of the resurrection. Hope is starting to win out over grief. The disciples are trying desperately to believe. They're trying to cling tenaciously to the thought that maybe, just maybe, their Messiah really is alive. The next passage we're going to read captures that sentiment perfectly as Jesus appears to, his two, to two disciples as they walk home from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. Brother Art, come and read. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs, about seven miles. And they talked together of all these things that had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one with another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were at early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread, and blessed it, and brake it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. That's one of my favorite accounts of the resurrection. Uh, that must have been something. You know, Jesus took them through the whole Old Testament, unfolding those things concerning himself. I had some really good Old Testament survey classes in college, but I'd like to take this course. <laughs> if someone can find the syllabus for that one, I would love to have been there uh, to hear Jesus, the one who wrote the scriptures, take us through the whole Old Testament and point out the truths about himself. What a wonderful thing that was. Well, the other gospel writers record that Jesus by now has appeared to several other people, and there's disciples gathering together in Jerusalem, the, the 11, and then others joining them there, and they're sharing the stories of their encounters with Jesus, and it's an exciting time. And at that moment, just as they're sharing these things, the door barges op busts open and these two men from Emmaus come barging into the room. And maybe it's my sanctified imagination running away with it, but I picture them out of breath, huffing and puffing because they just run seven miles to get back. And they're tripping all over each other, stammering and, and trying to tell the story and, and communicating the experience they had just enjoyed the last couple of hours. I, I can picture it in my mind, how exciting that must have been. And then when it just can't get any better, what happens? Jesus himself appears in their midst. We pick up the account in verse 36 of Luke 24. And as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had spoken thus, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and oven honeycomb. And he took it, and he did eat it before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written. And thus it behoved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead 
on the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. It said everything that was written in, the, in Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms had to be fulfilled. There's at least 30 prophecies that I found, um, probably more, from the Old Testament, specifically relating to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ written some 500 to 900 years before Jesus was born. And every one of them came true in the scriptures that we read. It's amazing when you think about it. I want to take just a a moment and focus on one of the scriptures that she just read. In verse 46 of Luke 24, Jesus reminds his disciples that it was necessary for him to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And then he makes this phrase, this comment, repentance and remission of sin should be preached in all the world. We understand the idea of repentance. I think most of us understand what that's talking about, right? It's this change of mind about sin that ultimately results in a change of attitude and action in regards to sin. It's a 180-degree turn. I'm going one direction, I repent, I go the other way. And that needs to be preached, but he says also we need to preach remission for sins. And remission is an interesting word. It's not one that we use all the time today. And as you look at the word at its root form, it's the idea here of release from bondage or released from prison. It's been taken, and it kind of has the idea of forgiveness or pardon. That's the idea behind the word. It's the thought of taking our sins and letting them go as if we had never committed them. That's pretty incredible forgiveness when you think about it. It's not the cheap forgiveness that we sometimes give, right? Have you ever been guilty of this? Somebody does something to you and you offer to forgive them, but in the back of your mind you're still kind of holding on to that, you know, just in case you need it for leverage down the road. Um, I mean, that's human nature, isn't it? But that's not how Jesus Christ forgives. That's not the idea here of this word remission. It's the idea of removing our sins, as the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, burying them in the depths of the sea, promising to, to remember them no more. God can't forget, but he promises to remember them no more. To never bring them up against me again. That, my friends, is a powerful forgiveness. That's the forgiveness that was extended to, by Jesus to those that were torturing him there on the cross. When he read those, said those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So how can God forgive us this way? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 sheds a little more light on the subject. It says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission is the idea of forgiveness, and so there has to be blood involved. What is this talking about? Remission is to be preached to the world, but this remission comes at a price. Blood is required for true forgiveness. You know, the concept of Jesus' blood, as I mentioned several times today, it was in several of the songs that we sang. It's going to be the focal point of the medley. The choir is going to sing here in just a little bit. And if you don't have a lot of exposure to the word of God or to Christianity, that may seem like a weird thing to you. Understandably so. It may seem a little bit peculiar because we don't understand it. So why is there so much emphasis in the scripture on the blood, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, and then the blood of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? I just want to take a few minutes this morning and walk us through that. I think we'd all agree that blood is a precious and valuable thing. We're all thankful that we have blood, and we're thankful it's on the inside, (laughs) and it's not visible on the outside right now. Um, We need blood. Blood is necessary for life. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, God says this, The life of the flesh 
is in the blood. And if you follow it through just a little further in, in verse 14, he says, the blood is the life of all flesh. You can get injured and you can lose an arm or you can lose a leg, you could lose an eye, and you can still live through that. But we all know if you lose too much blood, you're going to die. And it doesn't take a very serious wound, a very big wound, to clip an artery and cause you to bleed out. Blood is important. We understand the preciousness of blood today. We've got organizations like the Red Cross um, who, who take donations. We, at the church here, they come every other month and they set up in the gym and they, they're full. Columbia Falls does a great job. I'm guessing many of you here donate blood. I've seen several of you in and out of the church during those times. Have any of you been a recipient of a blood transfusion? You were injured in such a way and so serious that if you didn't have somebody else's blood given to you, you may have died in that situation. We understand the value and the importance of love, of blood. It's seen in the fact that it's necessary for life. But it's also seen in the punishment that's meted out to those who shed it. That shows the value of blood. Clear back in the Old Testament when Cain killed his brother Abel. Sibling rivalries have been around since the beginning of time. <laughs> Cain kills his brother Abel, and what does God say? Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. His blood is crying out. I think crying for retribution. Jesus' blood cries out for redemption. It's a whole different concept. We could take some time on that. A little later in Genesis chapter 9, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. The idea here is that when you take that which is most valuable, it requires a payment of equal value. But it's blood that's mentioned there specifically. You know, it's interesting, when Jesus was on trial, Pilate found him innocent three different times. I see no fault in this man. He's innocent. I want to let him go. And the Jewish leader says, no, crucify him. And then they make this statement, his blood be upon us and upon our children. That's profound. They understood what they were doing. They understood the, the seriousness of what they were saying. And what does Pilate say? He goes and he washes his hands ceremonially and he says, I am free of the blood of this innocent man. We understand the importance of blood. It's necessary for life. It requires a lot when we take it. it the punishment is there. But secondly, think about this. Blood is the only commodity that's valuable enough to pay the penalty for sin. Why so much talk about the blood? Because there's so much sin. And blood is the only thing that's valuable enough to pay for our sin. Follow this through. Blood is the source of life. It gives life. The penalty for sin is death. The Bible says the soul that sins, it will die. Therefore, blood, the source of life, is required to pay the penalty for sin, the cause of death. That's the connection between blood and sin. And, between, and why we have to have blood shed for that. And so God set up in the Old Testament some temporary measures. And I think you, most of you understand this. There's a sacrificial system that was set up. In Leviticus chapter 17, the verse we just read, where it says the life of the flesh is in the blood, God goes on to say this, I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. And so this animal was sacrificed and its blood was used to atone for the sins of the one who offered it. Now there's an important distinction we need to make here between the idea of atonement and remission. What did we say remission was? It covers the sin. It totally removes the sin. It takes it away. Atonement simply covers it. These were temporary measures. Why? Because man continued to sin. And so every year on the day of atonement, he had to bring another sacrifice. He had to come and he had to offer it again and again and again and again. But these temporary measures pointed to a permanent solution. 
that God was going to give, a once-for-all sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could only cover the sins of man. Jesus' blood being divine guarantees complete forgiveness. Not a temporary atonement, but a permanent remission. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. It's on the screen. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal redemption for us. The thought goes on in Hebrews chapter 10, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. They've got to come back and do it again and again. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Then said he, this is Jesus, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Think back to the garden. I come to do your will, O God. He taketh away the first. The sacrificial system is done away with. And now we have a second, uh, the idea of grace, salvation by grace, by the which we all are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. What does it mean that he sat down? It means it was done. It was finished. No other sacrifice was necessary. And so blood is indeed a precious commodity. It's the only substance valuable enough to cleanse us from our sin. And God set up these temporary measures of atonement in the Old Testament that pointed to a future permanent solution in the New Testament. And so now we need to come to the book of John and tie this all together. We don't see it in Luke's gospel, but we see it in the gospel of John. It's in chapter 19. You've got it on the screen, but I need to flip to it here in my Bible so that I get it right. John chapter 19. We're picking up the story just as Jesus has surrendered his life. And um, in verse 31, it says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a holy day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that he might be taken away. A little backstory here. The crucifixion was an incredibly cruel form of, of capital punishment. An especially strong individual might linger on the cross for days in torment uh, as they struggled and struggled to breathe. Generally, a person died on the cross from asphyxiation. It got to the point where they could no longer lift themselves up to get air into their lungs. And so these people, knowing this, decided that with the Sabbath approaching, they didn't want bodies on the cross. And so they asked the soldiers to go and to break the legs of these men. So they could no longer lift themselves up and get air into their lungs. It would speed up the process. So we look to the next verse. And it says, They came, the soldiers, and broke the legs of the first, the first thief, and, and broke the legs of the second that was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. Which fulfills a prophecy, like I mentioned before, not a bone of him would be broken came to Jesus, saw he was dead already. They broke not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. The soldier came to Jesus, and he was already dead, and so he didn't break his legs. He took his spear, and he, he pushed it up under the ribcage of our Lord Jesus Christ and up into the heart. And from that wound, there flowed blood and water, the perfect blood of the spotless Lamb of God. And that blood, my friends, has the power not simply to cover your sin, but to completely remove it, to forgive it for all of eternity. 
That's why we sing about the blood. That's why it's a big deal to us as believers. Jesus died on the cross, we understand that, but it was his blood that accomplished the work. And that's why, as Peter says, it's the precious blood of the Lamb. I'm going to ask the choir to come, and we're going to sing a medley of songs. They're triumphant songs that talk about the blood of Jesus Christ. Come on up to the platform. Let's sing this together. That first song that we sang asked the question, would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. You know, folks, Jesus Christ wants to set you free from your sin. That's the whole reason he came. It's the focal point of what we've been talking about here today. It's true that his blood paid the penalty for your sins, uh, paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world. But it's also true that that is not appropriated to you and to me unless we receive it. Does that make sense? The offer stands. The offer is available, but it doesn't come any good to me until I receive it. Perhaps an illustration will make sense here a little bit. Suppose that you had a terminal illness. The doctors have given you a very short time to live, and there doesn't seem to be any hope. But then a medication comes out on the market, and it has the power to completely cure the disease that you have. The only problem is the price for that medication is extremely high. And you can't afford it. You live paycheck to paycheck, and there's no way you could pay for the medication that you need to live. But then a wealthy donor comes along the scene, and he offers to cover the cost of that medication not only for you, but for any person that needs it. What an incredible gift. But here's my question. Is the offer itself sufficient to cure your disease? The answer to that question is no. The offer, as great as it is, is not going to take care of your disease because until you accept it, the offer is not doing you any good. The medication has to be taken. And folks, it's the same that's true with the offer of salvation. God's made this offer. The offer of salvation is there for each one of us. The penalty has been paid, but now the ball remains in your court. What are you going to do with that offer? Are you going to accept it or are you going to reject it? And we've got to make that decision. My question for you today is, have you ever done that? Has there ever been a time in your life where you acknowledged that you were a sinner? You know, we can have pride in our hearts, but we all understand we've done things that are wrong. And the older we get, we understand the potential of what's in our hearts. It's not always pretty. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Has there been a time that you acknowledged that you were a sinner? Has there been a time that you realized that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin? upon the cross of Calvary. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, but God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Has there been a time that you realized that and then repented of your sin and received the gift that God offers to you? John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Has there ever been a time where you made the conscious choice to turn from your sin and to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Oh, I trust that's taken place for you. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 makes this promise, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My friend, if you've never done that, you can do that today. Wouldn't Easter Sunday 2023 be a great day to come into the family of God? Oh, if you've never done that, we'd love to talk to you more about that at the end of the service. If you're here today as a believer, let me ask you a question as well. Is the resurrection making a difference in your life? Are we living by resurrection power? If you follow the story of the disciples from the time of the cross through the book of Acts into the time of the beginning of the church, there's a huge difference in these men. They went from cowering in fear to preaching to the same council that put Jesus Christ to death. Imagine how much courage that took. What a change came into their lives. And it's in the same context that Jesus gives us our commission, isn't it? To go into all the world and preach the gospel. And God gives us the power that we need to do that. That's our mandate. Resurrection supplies the power. Are we living in light of the power of the resurrection? These are the thoughts I'd like us to think about as we close our service. And if you take your hymn books and turn to 476. If God's working in your heart, you say, you know, Pastor Mark, I've never done that. I don't know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've never understood this. I'd love to talk with you further today. Uh, There's others in this building that know the Lord and love him and would love to talk with you as well. Uh, Feel free just to hang out afterwards and find one of us. And we'll take God's word and we'll show you how you can know for sure that you'll spend eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. Understand the power of the resurrection. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We do know we have this moment. And I'd encourage you to take advantage of that if the Lord's working in your heart. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful day we have come to celebrate the resurrection. Lord, we've also seen the cross and the the tomb, those somber parts of the story. But Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you conquered death, that you're not in the tomb. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion. The tomb is empty. And Father, we thank you so much for that. We thank you for the picture of blood and the importance of that and, and the fact that Jesus Christ went and shed his blood for us on the cross. God, help us to take advantage of the gift that he offers to us. And then, Lord, as believers, to go out living in resurrection power. Lord, what a great thing you've done for us. Lord, as we go to our homes now and enjoy the rest of the day with friends and with family, keep our minds fixed upon what you've done for us. And, Lord, we thank you so much for that in Jesus' name. Amen.